Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. These chats are fun, informative, and hopefully always interesting. Today, I'm talking to Carly Strawn. Carly began her career working in tourist attractions on a three-month contract until she found a real job. But almost 15 years later, she's still here. She now works with museums, arts and heritage, and tourist attractions worldwide, and is a really passionate supporter of the industry. We discuss unpopular opinions, emerging innovation, the future of attractions, and why pre-booking is a benefit to attractions, regardless of COVID. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Carly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's lovely to have you here. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. We've Zoom met, haven't we? Because we, yeah. we had a Zoom chat during lockdown, which was lovely. That's how you're on the podcast today, because I've dragged you on. Happy to be dragged. Happy to be dragged. I'm glad. I always start off with a few icebreaker questions, but even though we know each other, I don't know the answers to these questions. So... Oh, gosh. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine. Okay. So if you could travel back in time, what period would you go to? Oh, I... It would be Art Deco. I would be living in Butlins with very wide trousers on, um, <laughs> playing golf really badly. Oh, I um, love that. Yeah, I, I love that period of people are just sort of learning to enjoy their leisure time, or at least, you know, the upper classes are just starting to really enjoy their leisure time. And, you know, suddenly the, the Working Holiday Act comes in and normal people start to get holiday. And, you know, we have that real sort of period of lots of people going to the seaside and Blackpool starts growing and all these kind of spa towns pop up. And I love that that period that people just sort of really start enjoying themselves yeah. or, you know, seemingly start to enjoy themselves. And the art from that period of, you know, all the the transport is such a big thing all of a sudden. Everyone's train traveling and it, yeah, just glorious. Something about the architecture from then as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's really, really striking. Yeah, if you if you've ever been to Elton Palace, Elton Palace in um, South East London, well, sort of on the outskirts of I South haven't. East London, is is really truly stunning. Just yeah, this that that period would be mine. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned playing golf badly. So, what is your favourite hobby? Is it golf? Oh God, no! No, I'm terrible <laughs> at golf. I love the the only thing I like about golf is that there's a there's a place there's one I think there's one or two in England it's called Top Golf which is oh, kind yeah. of like golf, but a bit more like bowling. So, you know, you, you don't, but no, I, I'm terrible at that too. But it, I'm sort of, it's nice to be bad at things sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. I'm, def- <laughs> I'm bad I'm, at all I'm my e- hobbies. I'm equally <laughs> bad at golf, to be fair. It's just uh, anything that's like hand-eye coordination, like pool or golf or dart, <laughs> I'm really bad at. Yeah, fair. Um, no, my, in my spare time, generally, I, I run quite a lot. Again, really badly. <laughs> I'm not very good at it. Uh, I'm very slow, but I I can generally run for a long time, and I, I like it. It's it's, it's a nice uh, sort of in your own space activity. Mm. It's quite mindful, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I started running in 2014, and then I thought, well, I've started running now, so I'll run a marathon. And so I, I went from never having run really to running a marathon in a year, wow. uh, which now I realise is a stupid thing to do. Um, <laughs> if you're looking for something to be mindful with <laughs> I, I'm not very fast at all so like my first marathon I did six and a half hours and there's nothing's going to make you be in your head more than six and a half hours 
of running really slowly. <laughs> had a lot to think about that day. Yeah, a real, a real lot. No, it's an amazing achievement to do that. I mean, I'm in awe of anyone that can do a marathon. So awesome. All right, last icebreaker question. And I have, I've shamefully stolen this from um, the Greg James Breakfast Show. <laughs> he has a slot on there where he asks people to phone in with their unpopular opinions. And I love it. So oh God. I want you to tell me something that, that you think is true, but hardly anyone agrees with you. So oh, I've God. your unpopular opinion. I'm the queen of unpopular opinions. Oh, I love I, it. Oh, great. No, Bring it on. My husband has a joke about, when we, we have a running joke about the fact that I, I always want a tattoo. And my idea for a tattoo is just the phrase, I didn't really think it through. <laughs> um, just to have, you know, wherever so you can see it. Because that, like, things come out of my mouth and I don't generally mean to say them. Um, I'm trying to think of something that I... Hmm... I, I once did tell some people that I thought that um, Devon had no shops in it. <laughs> and oh. I, still, I still stand by that fact that whenever, whenever I sell things on eBay, especially when I used to live in London, so I I'd, I'd have a lot of I'd have a clothes addiction that's pretty bad. So whenever I sold clothes, it would always be people in Devon and Cornwall that bought them. And my, my opinion about that was that it was just because they just don't have shops. How strange! That's a weird. <laughs> that's a really weird coincidence. But I got I got shouted down about it, but I was like, no, nope, stand by it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that counts. That definitely counts as an unpopular opinion. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll be getting letters in now from people that live in Devon and Cornwall saying we do have shops and they're very good. I am no. I am a little bit worried actually when these podcasts <laughs> air about what feedback I'm going to get. So okay, right, fifteen years in the attraction sector. That's how long you've been working in yeah. it. What, <laughs> for my sins. What, for your sins. Tell me what you've been doing and where and, and how you've got to what you're doing now. So I always tell people, when people say, oh, you know, how did you get started in your career? And I say, well, I had a ski season booked. I, I met my husband at the end of university and I had a ski season booked. We, we went and did a snow season. And um, I needed a job between leaving university and, and starting this ski season and uh, I had two two jobs that offered me, and one of them was um, a recruitment agency, and it was I think it was twenty thousand pounds a year, and the other one was Madame Tussauds in London, and and that was not twenty thousand pounds a year. Uh, let's be very clear. Um, and it was just you know just working in the in the retail shop and, and on photography, and I thought, well, I'm only going to be there for three months. I don't really want to go and take a job that I'm going to have to train for. I was already working in retail part time. I thought, oh, I'll just take the Madden Swords job. It'll last me three months. I'll go and do something else afterwards. I'll get a real job. Um, <laughs> and I, do you know what? I, I, if someone had told me at some point during, you know, all the career stuff you do at school and all that kind of thing, I, I really wish someone at some point had said to me, you can work in tourist attractions because honestly, it changed my life. Those three months was, were some of my, my best working ones. And I sold Maltesers and guidebooks and, you know, whatever. Like, you know, this was not a career plan by any means. But I met some great people, people I'm still friends with. And I, my three months was up and I went off and did my ski season. And when I came back from my ski season, I literally landed in London, unpacked my stuff into a shared house and went to work the next day back at Madison Swords. Oh wow. I just loved it. I was so excited to go back. I was really happy to be there. And then they started a graduate program and I was the second intake of that graduate program. 
the, the one before us was um was still when before it was um, merlin entertainment when it used to be the swords group so this was the first ever merlin entertainment graduate program there were seven of us um i'm still friends with everybody off that program we did each other's jobs so you know it was literally just a job swap for two years Gosh. we went and did lots of different things uh, i worked in hr I, I managed food and beverage i did all sorts of jobs events entertainment you know costuming all all kinds of stuff and absolutely loved it um, and I stayed with them for seven years. So yeah, I did two years on the graduate program and then five years sort of working in, in various attractions. I, I ran weddings at Warwick Castle. I managed the aquarium down in Brighton and the Sea Life Centre. And I then went up and ran the Legoland Discovery Centre up in Manchester um, and helped them open the Sea Life up there. And then I got really involved in um, till projects. We had a till project where everybody was changing their software and that you don't see these things for what they are at the time I guess but like looking back it was such a, a coincidence you know I was a person that's pretty IT literate and they were looking for somebody in the attraction to go and train over in America and you know I'd never really been anywhere and they said do you want to go and you know go, go to the back of beyond in Pennsylvania and learn this ticking system and I went yeah I'll go you know me <laughs> take me yeah and um and I went and I learned this tool system and then I, I helped with the rollout of that tool system as kind of an operations IT person sort of translating between the two you know this is what the business is doing and this is what IT need and, and you know making that work and then um from there I then started working for Gateway Ticketing. So Gateway were the, the software that I went and learned out in the States. They opened a, a London office um, and I, I snapped their hand off and went to work for them. So I was with Gateway then for six years, worked all over the place. You know, I just had the best time working with attractions and got to see some really cool stuff. You know, I've been out to Shanghai, I've been out to Dubai, I've been here, there and everywhere and with our um, attraction partners. And then last year, the I'm like, what year is it? It's the 2020 <laughs> killing me. It could be anything. Um, so in 2019, um, me and my husband decided we kind of weren't that fussed about where we were living, and you know, we I was commuting into London most days, and we had a kind of a, a bit of a, a a lifestyle kind of change discussion about we you know we wanted to kind of do something different. I was working from home a lot. Uh, when I wasn't doing this, you know, my commute was quite long and, you know, I was working out of our spare room and it, it just, we sort of thought, well, what are we doing? What do we want to do, you know, with the next X years of our lives? So we, we up sticks, we moved um, up north or sort of as, as Midlandsy as the north can be, um, <laughs> just south of Sheffield. And, um, and we, we bought a house that has some land on it. And, um, and I, I, I left Gateway Ticketing on, on really good terms. I still, you know, they're, they're a fantastic bunch of people. It just, we'd, we'd grown so much in those six years that I was with them that the job I'd started doing wasn't really the job I, I finished doing. And, right. and I was ready to sort of go and do something else. And so I, I became self-employed last year and I've been helping people now find ticketing solutions. So yeah, it's been when I think about the person that went for three months at Madame de Swords to sell guidebooks, I never imagined it would end with, you know, people calling me and asking me my opinions about tourism. Because at the time I had no opinions about tourism. I had no idea it even existed as a career. And I wish someone had told me earlier. I really do. 
what an amazing adventure you've been on though like I love I love how you described where you kind of started from one place and you moved all the way yeah. around the, the, you know you've done everything in in so many different attractions like you you know you said you ran weddings and then you ran yeah. the aquarium and it's like wow how varied <laughs> your career yeah, and, possibly have been and and it's funny because I I you know I, I went to university and people asked me what I did at university I did performing arts in English I have <laughs> I've literally nothing to do with management or business or you know tourism or anything and I just loved it and I've always liked the kind of back of house elements of of theatre that's I think and I think that's where the two intersect is yeah I'd always liked that element of sort of show business and I, I think i people always said to me oh, did, you, did you go and do performing arts at university because you wanted to be an actor and I absolutely not <laughs> I had no intention of acting at all ever but I always had a, an interest in what was happening backstage that makes the show happen and I think that that's where I see it really is that I do the stuff that nobody notices yeah so that the stuff that you do notice is seamless when I talk to people about ticketing obviously all the time and they say to me well you know who cares about ticketing no that's right that's the right thing you shouldn't care about when you buy a ticket it should be absolutely seamless yeah I completely agree you should not remember it I tell people this all the time lots of people will say to you oh going to Disney's expensive going to Universal's expensive when you've been very few people can tell you actually how much it costs because by the time they've had that experience they don't care (laughs) the the cost is gone and you shouldn't remember oh yeah I spent a hundred dollars on a ticket you should just remember that you bought a ticket at some point but it gave you this amazing experience. Yeah. And once you got through the gates, everything was magic and you didn't even yeah. care. <laughs> yeah. You know, absolutely. And, and that your memory of that is, is always going to be stronger than your memory of, you know, the, the transactional stuff. Yeah. The transactional stuff has to happen, but it doesn't need to be a part of your experience, really. It should be forgettable almost instantly. I love that. I actually really, you know, when you were, when you said about your performing arts background, I was thinking experience the whole time because it it, it is a show, isn't it? You know, yeah. ultimately mm. that, you know, from the minute that somebody turns up at an attraction, you are creating that show experience for them, you know, from, yeah. from, from start to finish. And I think that having that kind of background must have played, you know, a small part in, in pushing you in that, in that kind of direction. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, let's say that's always been my interest. It just, you know, when you talk to someone about, oh, I want to do English and performing arts and people say, oh, great, you know, you're going to be a teacher or you're going to go and work in a theatre or whatever. No one ever thinks, oh, yeah, well, you know, how many actors or or show producers do I know who work out at Disneyland Paris? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But no one ever tells you that that's something that you could go and do. Yeah. What about what? What's the best thing about the role that you now have? Because now you are a, a consultant and you work mm. with a variety of different attractions up and down the country. What's What's the best thing about what you do? It's always been the people. I think, quite honestly, I love people. Um, I could you couldn't do this job if you didn't. Yeah, I think for me, it's the 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 people that you meet because they're always fascinating. People are always interesting, and the variety of what I get to do. So, you know, I I have conversations with non-profit organizations and I have conversations with um, totally you know profit-based organizations who really want to drive every penny and they think that they're really different and actually they're not 
actually at the core of what they want is they, they want to give a really good experience regardless of kind of profit non-profit all that all the other things that yeah. and I find that really interesting I find that the reaction to the things you talk about is quite interesting in terms of if you go to a big non-profit organization so let's say we go to the, the Victoria and Albert Museum we go to the V&A and we talk to them about ticketing is that there's no point saying to them oh, and we also do ticketing for Disney, or I also worked on this for Universal, because they don't see themselves in the same space. Well, they're absolutely in the same space. Yeah, it's funny, um, isn't it? They're, they're competitors and nobody, no one sees it that way. I had the same conversation with someone a few weeks ago about this, how a lot of museums don't see themselves as attractions. Yeah. And I can't, I can't work that out in my head, why <laughs> yeah. they would feel so differently about them or, or feel that yeah. they're not, not the same, they don't have the same challenges. Yeah. And, and I've always been of the opinion that, you know, you said about, oh, it seems like quite a, a strange career path to think weddings at Warwick Castle versus managing an aquarium. And, and they are very different. But actually, all you're doing is providing an experience for someone. Mm. What's beyond the door is sort of irrelevant. It, you need to still have people come in and, and pay you and do the transactional stuff, whether they come in and they get, I don't know, dinosaur exhibit or they get an aquarium or they get roller coasters it's kind of irrelevant because they're all competing against each other for time so you know the easier you can make that process or the easier you can make that judgment for someone you know that choice is you're going to be more successful yeah because you're competing against a playstation at home or you're competing against going and sitting on the beach for free or going to the local park but you're also competing against people that you've no idea that you know are in your area (laughs) but yeah and I I, it is endlessly interesting to me I spend my my leisure time doing what I do in my (laughs) work time (laughs) I love a busman's holiday you know I go and I take pictures of signage and pictures of tills and you know it it is sad but it 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 entertains me endlessly (laughs) oh no I but I love that about you and I think this is this is why we ended up connecting because I think um I saw an article that you wrote for Museum Next which I loved. And, um, and then I started stalking you on Twitter. <laughs> oh God, don't stalk me on Twitter. It's, it's where you get all my real actual, that's where, that's where my own popular opinions live. I can it's tell best, you. It's the best bit though. <laughs> so, I love Twitter. <laughs> so I, I kind of started following you on there and I loved the, I loved what you talked about. I, I loved the, the kind of personality that you share on there, but I really loved what you, you know, I loved how much you love the sector. Mm. You, know, you are, you know, you are the first person that I look to, to, to see, you know, what's happening next. Um, you know, what opinions you've got about, you know, innovation and, and stuff. Yeah. And I, it, I, I just think it's brilliant. So, you know, there's so much passion there for you. And I guess there's some things that I want to talk about, about the future, but I kind of just want to look back quickly mm. because I want to ask what lockdown was like for you, both kind of personally and professionally, because you sit in a position of, you know, you, you absolutely love attractions, you know, mm. that shines through in everything that you do and talk about, but you work with them as well. So this, it must've been a really difficult time to kind of watch some of your favorite places close and not really know what was going to happen. And also yeah. not know what was going to happen for you with probably some contracts that you had in place as well. Yeah. Like I say, we, the end of 2019 was a big change for, for me personally anyway. I became self-employed. We, we moved away from where we'd been living previously. And, you know, we, we kind of decided that this was the, a, a new world for us. And so 
I then suddenly had all these just plans and I not just work plans you know one of my things was um that I I plan to spend a lot of this year traveling which I keep saying to people I'm like the person that buys uh sandals before a bank holiday and I've got to apologize to everyone <laughs> because I had a, a lot of plans to travel this year and to to sort of spend a lot of time networking and really building my my business and obviously and then <laughs> it very quickly became obvious that uh -oh. <laughs> we weren't we weren't going anywhere so sorry everyone that was me <laughs> um, but yeah and I because I do a lot of work with China and a lot of I do a lot of research around construction and obviously there's a lot of construction going on in, in theme parks in, in China at the moment and so I kind of felt like I had a bit of a heads up as to what was coming because mm -hmm. I, I'm so involved in that market and I could see things sort of creeping towards us and, and getting cancelled and I have some contacts um, that I, I deal with out in the, the very far end of Russia and they very quickly were like this is this is going to be bad. Like, you know, we're closing casino construction. Casino construction doesn't stop for anything because wow. there's so much money in it. And, you know, sort of thinking, oh, God, this is going to be really difficult. But not sort of realising how sort of emotionally difficult it was going to be for people mm. in terms of, you know, we are all really passionate. And, and sometimes I think that can be a downside as well, is that, you know, all industries are affected life is very hard at the moment but because we're so attached to our jobs and the, you know the the institutions that we're involved in and the attractions that we deal with that actually it becomes much more personal yeah so you know and, and i'm sure everybody feels that or maybe not everybody feels that way about their industry but you know the people that i know generally do my husband works in pubs for example you can imagine it, it's it's very similar people are very very scared and very um, their personalities are wound up in you know what jobs they do and, and all that kind of stuff and it, it can be really and it, and I've seen it with lots of people of just being really emotionally difficult just even things like being furloughed you know they're still sitting at home and, and being paid but you're not doing the thing that you sort of feel you're compelled to do and feeling quite isolated which you know I said I've been um, volunteering a local charity here and I, I said to the, the guys they were like you know what what made you volunteer and I said it's really difficult to explain to people if you've never worked in this but I've worked in jobs where I saw thousands of people every day you know I, I, I used to have a desk when I worked in sea life and I could open the door and look at the queue and pretty much predict how many thousands of people we would get through the door that day you know and be, and be relatively close to it so you know yeah. you'd see maybe 3,000 people filing past my my desk just the other side of the door and I said you know to go from being at you know big conferences and networking events and the stuff that I do in the industry all the time to seeing nobody for a few months was was really terrifying because I've never lived like that mm -hmm. <laughs> and for me I, I think I have a very you know talked about running a very fight or flight response to that kind of stress but literally flight you know, if I'm in a position where I think, okay, you know, I've had a project cancelled or something, what's the thing that I'm going to do to replace that? Mm. I'd go to a big networking event. I'd get on a plane and I'd, I'd go to Orlando and I'd go and see some people out there and, you know, we, we'd figure something out. 
you can't do that so like all of a sudden all the normal responses to this kind of personal difficult stuff become totally unavailable to you and you know the my diary is notoriously full of networking events conferences whatever because that's where I'm really comfortable I love that I love the the people and the the busyness of it and to suddenly have that taken away regardless of the financial implication I was being very lucky in that um, well, unlucky in some respects because I, I I'm so newly employed. I'm not eligible for any financial um, right. backing, which is difficult. Yeah. Um, but also because I made this decision to go freelance last year, that actually I had a, a good pot of savings that's going to get me through it. So actually, you know, pretty lucky in that respect. But regardless of kind of the financial situation, was that all this stuff that I normally do to make that better was suddenly unavailable mm-hmm. and you know august is always a hard month for contractors in this industry because no one wants to talk to you <laughs> you know everyone's too busy doing stuff yeah and actually you know i kind of it's rolled around to august and i can see things improving but you just don't know at the moment you're sort of thinking is you know is this a quiet august because august is always quiet or is this kind of a you know a sign of things to come but i i do feel more hopeful than i did in kind of march april time because march april time we were really looking at lots of places saying we just don't think we're going to be able to open and there was a real sort of panic about it and I sit on a couple of um, groups that do you know catch-up calls every every few weeks and sort of watching people who work in the the industry and you know going one by one okay you know we thought we were going to reopen we're not reopening you know there's still people that I deal with that aren't going to reopen now till 2021 yeah and you sort of think god actually you know but that in march april time you sort of were were checking people off as that was happening i feel like it's sort of starting to go back the other way a little bit now hopefully things are going in the right direction yeah it does it feels like i know that i mean it is still a difficult time a really really challenging time and even Mm. with some of the attractions that we work with you know that are opening we still don't really know what the demand is going to be like, especially yeah. for indoor attractions. So it's yeah. still a very difficult time. It's hard to plan, but there's, it, it does feel more hopeful. I completely yeah. agree with you on that. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, you're right. It's not the, the stuff that feels hopeful is a feeling. We are still not sure. Mm. And even looking at places that are outdoor, you know, and thinking about things like the national trust, which should be super resilient to this yeah. kind of, you know, they're, they're mainly outdoor. They, they're a very big organization. Actually, I think in some cases that's not working in their favor is mm. that then they're resilient to some change, but you, the stuff that you don't see coming, the stuff that totally blindsides you, like, you know, lockdown and, and all, all the stuff that's gone on this year is that if you don't have an organization that can really turn very quickly, you know, and, and, pull in lots of expertise very quickly and, and make changes, make decisions really quickly, is that you just won't survive it. And that I think is is more scary actually for the really big places than it is for the smaller ones. The smaller yeah. organizations will be able to make those changes, even if it's very difficult financially for them. They should, yeah. you know, they'll they'll be a little bit more resilient because they'll be able to to change how they operate quite quickly. But, you know, we've seen things like the National Trust and the the really big sites they just don't have the the ability to turn stuff around and that's we will see a very different 
landscape, I think, when we come out of it. And coming out of it is another thing. We talk about returning to normal. I don't think anybody really believes now that we're going to return to normal suddenly. No. There's never going to be the same normal again. No, I, I, yeah, I have to agree with you on that. And actually, we've seen that from the weekly tracker that the BDA have been sending out that at the start of the lockdown, there was an assumption that by Christmas, things would be back to normal. And now that's shifting further and further and further and further into 2021. Yeah, anyone who studied history will tell you, oh, it'll all be over by Christmas. It's the worst. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's not let's not start on that because, you know, 10 years later, we'll still be doing it. Yeah. The other sort of angle on that as well is, is that we're talking about people who are already in the industry who remember what it's like to have, you know, tourism growth every year. And there's always a market for tourism and there's always a market for whatever it is. You know, we've, we've had lots of new tourist attractions popping up all over the world. People are, you know, moving their middle classes, much more leisure time, much more disposable income. Mm. But I, I have a 16 year old niece and I talk to her and she's really got no back reference for that. She'll enter this job market with this as, you know, at the beginning and, and much in the same way as when I entered the job market, we just had, you know, we, we were hitting the recession. This is a hundred times worse than that. And I think that will be interesting to see play out is that how does that affect really long term, not just the people that remember <laughs> when stuff was really good you know we're going to be bringing people into the industry who really don't have any prior knowledge of what that was like it'll be interesting to see how that that plays out I think over the next 10 years as those those people really mature into the job market what I'd like to do is just take a bit of time to to look at what you think the future of attractions can actually be at the moment so you know are there any positives that can come from from what we've seen happen and then do you think, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about how you network and, you know, the, essentially you would jump on a plane, you'd go somewhere, you'd go to a big event, you'd go to a big conference. Obviously, none of those things can happen, but there are conferences happening virtually now. So we are seeing, you know, a shift in that sense. You know, what kind of other things do you think that we'll see in terms of innovation um, and change from attractions? So let's start with conferences. There's a lot more access now. The costs are lower. I don't have to fly. Stuff is becoming more accessible. And I'll, I'll talk about that again when we get to the sort of what our attraction's doing. But actually, I don't think there's anything that replaces face-to-face. No. I just, and especially in an industry that is so people-focused, there's so much that you just cannot do. It needs to be more of a conversation. And I think that when you're talking about online conferences, and it, it's much more of an output than a conversation and you know I I love I love a good conference <laughs> don't get me wrong <laughs> I did say to someone the other day oh, I'd, e- I'd even go to a really terrible conference right now <laughs> I just I just want to sit just in a to room talk to people yeah just somebody tell me something that I don't even believe you know it's fine I'll just sit there and eat sandwiches it's great <laughs> um but I do I do think that we are an industry that really relies on face-to-face um and really relies on people being in the same room. And I think that goes for attractions as well, is that you can have an experience at home. Um, one of the ones that I really loved actually was um, the Tate did Tate Lates online, which was brilliant. And 
again, that kind of payoff between access versus actual experience was mm. that I love Tate Lates, but I now live quite far away from London. If I want to go to Tate Lates, I have to stay overnight. It's fine. You know, I, I don't mind doing that. I'll, I'll mix it in with some work and we'll, we'll go do it. But actually to be able to experience Tate Lates in my own living room was really lovely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and actually are we, we haven't been serving those communities really well. Um, I think that that move to serving online communities really needs to be focused on more. And I think that might be the, the article that you referenced earlier about Museum Next was that I think we could be doing so much more to engage our online communities or our remote communities. Um, because your community isn't just who's on your doorstep. It's not the people coming through your front door. Actually, serving your community doesn't necessarily mean letting people in your building. You can be servicing a community online. You can be serving a community of, of enthusiasts who really love your, your mission, who really want your attraction to be successful, but they don't necessarily need to visit. Yeah. And I think there's going to be, hopefully, a bit more progress in that area as well. Um, in terms of making things more accessible to people who just really can't get to you uh, for whatever reason. And, and I think actually in terms of leveling the playing field about, you know, not feeling, you know, the, the other stuff that's going on in 2020 is really around access, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the kind of um, pushing for things like universal basic income, which I'm super passionate about, but that's another thing. Um, it's really about where do we serve people? At what point do we stop people accessing something? Whether that's because of their appearance or their you know, disabilities or whether that's their income level, whatever it might be, is actually when we talk about things like who's our ideal customer and who is using our, you know, whether it's a museum collection or you know, who's coming to a theme park or whatever it might be, is that we're always discounting somebody because they can't either physically get to us or they feel excluded somehow. So actually, we could be doing a lot more, I think, as an industry to be much more inclusive of that. And I hope that that seeing that we can do a lot more things online actually will push people to do more. Um, you know, there's things that you can't do online. You can't ride roller coasters. You know, you can't. There's a lot of stuff that I love about this industry that, you know, you, you cannot replicate online, but that doesn't mean you you you're always looking to replicate you can be just adding you can just be giving additional content yeah um and i think that those people that really get on board with that and again you know how quickly can you turn on stuff like take lates online how quickly can you you know i've been talking or, or seeing in the industry about online escape rooms what a brilliant idea for yeah. museums to be in your home you know and I think if you can turn those types of things around actually you'll you'll be better off for it and that will make you more resilient um I had a conversation with um somebody I I, I work with recently about you know being a, a three-legged stool is that a lot of our museums we've seen recently and, and I I use museums kind of loosely because I mean kind of heritage attractions of all kinds some of that that you would see as having a collection um, of something whatever that collection might be is that quite a lot of them rely quite heavily on one leg and that actually we need to give that stool more legs <laughs> realistically <laughs> and, and that you know we've been sort of ignoring 
the people that don't come to our physical space. Yeah. And actually, I hope that, that we'll, we'll see a little bit more of that. I'm a pretty positive human being. I think as hard as times are, there's always been a leisure industry. There's always been museums. There's always been tourist attractions for people to go to. We've had such good times the last sort of, well, you know, I think, again, we're sort of starting in the, the 80s, really, when people really started to think about international travel and, and all that kind of stuff, is that we've had real boom times. A lot of countries around the world are really pushing people into their middle classes now. And that actually, this is just going to take us back a little while. But we've been here before. We've done hard things before. People just need to adapt. And those that don't adapt won't survive. And that's terrible. But I'm a big believer in if your mission is strong enough, if your proposition is good enough, there will always be a market for you. Even if it's not having a building, you can still have somebody, you know, that's super passionate about you. And um, I think one of the things we discussed uh, before I came on this podcast is that I've been working with um, a college, a higher education college out in um, Massachusetts in, in the States about them developing a museum of mental health and they've been discussing having a museum of mental health for a very long time and through similar article about virtual museums and, and you know what's happening with lockdowns and all that kind of stuff they got in touch with me and, and I've had a couple of conversations with them in which we've basically now developed a whole concept around what a virtual museum could look like because they know that they're never going to really be able to have a physical space. Mm. They'd like some physical collection. You know, they'd like some loan boxes and they'd like to have some pop-up stuff going on, but they don't really need a physical museum of mental health. So we're discussing with them, you know, what, what does a virtual museum look like? Could I go and, you know, not, it's not just a website. I don't want to go and just look at your collection and click on pictures. I want to get lost in it. I want the experience that I get from a real museum. And that would be, you know, I can walk different galleries. I can pick out different pieces of, of art or design or whatever it might be. And I can make links that make sense to me as an individual. I'm not just seeing a collated, you know, web page. And I think that's where we've fallen down before in the, that sector is that we just want to serve content all yeah. the time. It's, there's absolutely. no experience to it yes, at all, is absolutely. there? Like you, you can't choose what you do or you can mm. only choose what you look at. Yeah. And I think that if you could get lost in a website in the same way as you get lost in a physical space, you know, and that might even be as much as going down the route of some sort of virtual reality experience that, you know, what does that look like for people? Could you ever create something virtual that people really truly get lost in? And it's a great conversation to have with people who are really interested in mental health because actually a lot of it is, is quite cerebral anyway. Yeah. About, you know, what, what does this kind of experience look like and how does that change your emotion and how does that, it, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. We're having a lot of fun deciding what we do with it. <laughs> and we're talking to, you know, to games designers and, you know, people who design physical spaces and saying, okay, well, if we, if we built it so I could walk the rooms I could walk the galleries. Actually, would I pay to go into a different gallery like I would at a normal museum? Mm. Uh, you know, the, I think we're going to find a lot out. I think this is the real a catalyst for change. And I really hope that it, that it inspires the, the older, bigger museums or, you know, attractions to, 
get on board with that. It sounds really exciting as well, doesn't it? You know, an opportunity to do something that is so different. I guess in a way you can collaborate with more people as well because it's virtual and because it's an online process, you know, the kind of less barriers to to, to actually going ahead and doing it in the first place in terms of cost. And I think, yeah, oh yeah, and that's a huge thing, you know, is that you could put thousands into building a, a gamified, you know, platform that people could walk around, you know, with avatars and whatever. And actually, you know, you're still not putting money into a building <laughs> that you then have to upkeep, you know, and all the, the stuff that comes with it. But And I think, you know, you talk about this and it seems really far-fetched, but think about trying to explain something like Spotify to someone who's just got a tape player, right? Like, I, I can't imagine that something would serve me up it would understand that I'm listening to this song and maybe I like this other song because I, at the moment I literally have a tape player that plays in order. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think we, we've made those massive leaps in the recent years. Attractions have always been that little bit behind. And I, I think this is going to really accelerate that kind of change. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it is a time for attractions that can if attractions can be innovative now and like you say actually the ones that do have the you know their mission in place and they have a really kind of strong and solid offering are going to get through this but it is the time to innovate now because they can't assume that the way that they'll continue to open will be the way that continue people will continue to want to interact with them yeah that's my next question really is what your thoughts are for the next you know three six twelve months we've talked quite a lot about attractions that are reopening now Again, there's still that level of uncertainty around how many people are going to come back, depending on whether it's an indoor or an outdoor attraction. I mean, like we've seen incredible demand for places like zoos and wildlife parks, you know, um, like you say, national parks, again, you know, massive overwhelm, overwhelm. But we just don't know what it's going to be like in terms of indoor. And you do have that capped capacity to think about all the time. What do you think that means for the next kind of, six months from now how does that look yeah I I just want to talk actually about cap capacity before I think about that because I've been banging on <laughs> for want of a better word about cap capacity for a long time um pretty much um in a in a previous life a long time ago I went and spoke to Warner Brothers before they opened the Harry Potter experience right and I remember them saying to us at the time you will not be able to come to this attraction without pre-booking. And it's blowing people's minds. Like, literally, people sitting there saying, but no one will come. <laughs> like, literally, no one, no one will come if you have to pre-book. And they've been open a very long time now. I can't remember how many years it is, but it, it, it's long enough ago that I can't remember, put it that way. Um, I, I'm just, they're still fully booked the demand for it is incredible I mean they're booked months in advance yeah and you sort of think well hang on a minute so so we've been looking at that and and I I also then again previous job before I joined Gateway and and started looking at the actual till systems around was that I worked in an attraction where we would routinely have a six-hour queue well I can tell you something nobody has a good experience after they have queued for six hours (laughs) right they just don't. And so uh, I was trying to work out at that time, how do we 
you know, can we give people a space in a queue? You know, can we run some sort of virtual queuing setup? And and so I wish it had come, you know, in a better package. But I do think that will really improve some of our experiences. Yeah. Is that if you have to pre-book, people will plan more. People will be more, you know, they will say, oh, I'm coming on Sunday, and they'll come on Sunday. And if they don't come, it's probably because the experience isn't um, exciting enough, you know, or it's free, which we've seen with a lot of attractions is that if you put free tickets out, people will snap them up and then they won't come. So that's something to get around. There's ways of, of around making that work. But I, yeah, I think, you know, if you can get people to pre-book, you can manage your resources internally better. There's lots of things you can do that will improve your business and make your business easier to run because you'll know how many people you're going to service that day. Don't you think as well it's about create? I mean, Warner Brothers have done it incredibly because, um, oh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's so (laughs) super exciting. I mean, you're buzzing to get that ticket and to get there, but it is about creating that excitement, isn't it? Make your attraction, you know, you you need to book that ticket and you need to book it three months in advance because this is going to be the best experience you've ever had. Yeah. And I would also say about that, that level of experience and demand is that it allows them to price very accurately because they know that they can keep a headline price at, you know, what I think it's 39 pounds at the moment off the top of my head. And you go, gosh, you know, 39 pounds is a lot of money, but actually you don't have to discount at that point because you're booking so far out. You know that if demand starts to fall off, you can lower your price. If your demand starts to ramp up, you can increase your price. All this kind of stuff that you can really have, but if you just have people turning up at your door, you know, and I, I, you know, I come from a, a mail-in background where you can get two-for-one tickets continuously from some outlet throughout the year. Well, then nobody's paying full price. So, so what's your yield on that ticket? Mm. And I, again, that whole thing about being more resilient to changes is that those are the types of things that will keep you going because you'll be able to accurately predict what's happening. You know than just opening your doors and maybe seeing if people turn up and if it rains they don't those types of things you know yeah. or the total opposite when I worked in an aquarium is that if it if it rained you'd be busy yeah. you know but you sort you just don't know and you know there's so many variables that can affect your business is that actually I think as we you know I, I would rather it came in a nicer package than the way 2020 has delivered it but maybe it will make us sort of better organized yeah, I agree. Yeah, in terms of sort of the, the three, six, 12 months, I think the next three months is really just a hold your breath and, and hope because I, I think we'll get through the summer. Um, if they have a bad summer and we go into winter with, you know, very lean uh, finances for people is that we'll see a lot of things that don't open next year because people, you know, most attractions can't weather three essentially three winters Mm. and so if we have an okay summer I think we'll be fine and especially if for those outdoor attractions if we have a good um, weather summer then those attractions will probably be okay but yeah I I do think next spring might just be really difficult because I think a lot of places will have to come to the conclusion that they just can't operate and I I do have a, a sort of a a again I'm like oh I'm really positive about things and then I'm like oh I've got a really horrible feeling about winter um but I do think that 
if we have another lockdown over winter which i just think is sort of inevitable at this point mm. is that we will really be you know those attractions that open 365 will really be in serious trouble uh, yeah i do worry about it i think next spring is is going to be the time that we see actually it really start to bite yeah it's a really difficult thing to be able to predict and i think at the moment there's still so much uncertainty you know especially around are we going to get a second wave we just don't yeah. know it, it kind of it feels inevitable but I'm hopeful that we don't yeah, um, <laughs> yeah that is, it sort of seems weird doesn't it because I, I you know I'm generally quite a positive person but I'm, I'm also pretty practical about it and think yeah. oh you know it, I just don't it's not going anywhere when it's not over and I think we have to be really careful to not sort of think yes yeah, stuff's looking more positive oh it's going to be fine I think we're at the moment we're just pushing that down the track and we'll you know we'll trip over it at some point yeah it would be really interesting to talk to you again in another six months from now to see what is different I'd really I'd actually really like that I'm gonna invite you back on excellent yeah because <laughs> I'd, I'd like I'll to get see... I'll get the tequila out <laughs> no sorry Carly and I had a had a discussion off air about um alcohol smells that um have a very nasty effect on you and tequila is 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 not a smell for me so we won't be discussing tequila again <laughs> we'll be you. fine though because if, if we're not in the same room we'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> you can have a tequila there and i'll have yeah. maybe a sambuca yes. <laughs> oh carly <Sounds> delightful. <laughs> it does doesn't it <laughs> zoom cocktails yeah definitely so I like to end the podcast by asking you for a book recommendation. So maybe a book that has kind of helped shape your career in some way, or just a book that you absolutely love that you'd recommend to our listeners to read. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in a room at the moment with more books than <laughs> any human being should really own. I say my, my degree is in performing arts and literature. I am a, a book hoarder. So when you said, can you choose one? I sort of went, mm, not really. Um, I'd also say I'm not, really a theoretical book or or not in not in industry I I tend to learn by doing um so I like practical experience and I I like sort of more storytelling type stuff but I will say that the book that has totally and utterly shaped my life and I quote more than anything else in the whole world is free economics um if you haven't read, read free economics go and read it it's it's just really about statistics um I like real numbers. I'm not really into sort of abstract maths and I, I like proof. I, again, that thing about having unpopular opinions is that a lot of people will, especially in our industry, because I think so many people are into that experience, is that they'll give you anecdotes as fact. And we're pretty bad actually at making decisions <laughs> when we don't have the facts in front of us. And um Free economics is really about not making assumptions and looking at cause and effect and seeing where links are between data that you probably actually wouldn't normally make links between. There's a lot in it around just even things like um, why people with different names are less successful, um, which is totally, you know, off the wall and, and doesn't really make much sense. But then actually as someone who works in HR and used to recruit thousands of people yeah. at a time actually is is that going how many times have you looked at someone's CV and made a really quick judgment based on their email address 
Yeah, unconscious bias. Yeah, yeah totally. And actually, th- there's a lot of discussion in it about just because it's factually correct doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Um, and about really sort of taking the data and then making moral judgments with it. And I, I, I just found it really, really fascinating. I've always really liked statistics and I've always really been into kind of deep maths. <laughs> but it has to be based in in sort of real life for me and I, yeah it's a great book it's a really good book it's a really um, good book recommendation and, yeah and again thinking about you know unpopular opinions which is where we started <laughs> it has it has some really unpopular opinions in there it's, but it will yeah make you think this is a book for me if you'd like to win a copy of Carly's book, then if you head over to our Twitter account, which is skip the Q or skip underscore the underscore Q, and you retweet this episode announcement with the comment, I want Carly's book, then you will be in with a chance of winning it. Carly, I've absolutely loved talking to you today. I think that you've just, you've shared some really, really valuable insight. And I love the story of, of how you've come to do what you've what you do now we're gonna put all of Carly's details in the show notes so you'll find a link to her LinkedIn profile a link to her website I might link her to Twitter if she allows <laughs> if she allows me to link if to you her want Twitter. to have some really unpopular opinions <laughs> please come and join me on Twitter it's, oh. it's mainly cat pictures or llamas or tourist attractions so or please- maybe angry about things it's a place for me (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) oh thanks so much for coming on today carly it's been a pleasure has been really fun thanks thanks for listening to skip the queue if you've enjoyed this podcast please leave us a five-star review it really helps others find us and remember to follow us on twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned skip the queue is brought to you by rubber cheese a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.